All right. Welcome to another episode of Power of the Purell. I'm your host, Nick Bonney. Make sure to subscribe to our network. Yes, the Nux Misconduct Network. Not only do you get this show, you get Silky and Filthy. You get Sippin' on a 40. You get all these great shows. The Quickie. All with one subscription. Make sure to follow us on Twitter. At Power of the Towel. And myself, at Nick Bondi. Alright. We're going to do things a bit differently. We finally have a guest this week. Yes, I finally got a guest. Finally got myself to get a guest. And I'm gonna we're going to get right to it. Because I think it's a great interview. It's another than Thomas Trance of The Athletic. Just a minute, don't hang up. Hello. You'll have to speak up, I'm wearing a towel. So, we now welcome on Power of the Purell, the quarantine version of Power of the Towel. You know him You know him for his writing on The Athletic Vancouver, his podcast, The Vancast. It's Thomas Trance. Trance, how's it going, man? Going well, man. There's no such thing as too much Purell, right? The no, if you can find greatest. any. If you can find any. <laughs> Turns out that was the greatest comedy prediction of the last 10 years. Um, and Andy Sandberg and YOLO. So, shouts to him. Yeah, man. I, I've not seen that movie, <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure that's a very timely reference. So, like, how, how are you holding up during quarantine? Like, how, how has life been under uh, under quarantine for you? I see, I see you're still writing stuff for The Athletic. Like, how's that going? Yeah, I'm staying busy, you know, trying to stay as active as I can. My life's been really busy, so I'm doing a lot more of the cooking, and it turns out I'm pretty good. Um, you know, I've, I've picked up more than I had realized over the years, and um, look, it's been it's been challenging, obviously. It's a challenging time for sports media. It's a challenging time for any hockey fan who, you know, I just miss being in a loud mm-hmm. arena when a big goal is scored. Like, I miss covering games with stakes, and... I certainly miss, you know, just being in a locker room, chatting up, you know, whomever and, and working on an idea that really excites me. But, you know, that said, um, people, I think, still want to read about the teams they care about. They still want to engage with the fan communities that they've built online. And, you know, it's been fun to sort of challenge myself, I guess, to come up with new things to talk about in the absence of off-season news or hockey itself so you know overall i'm keeping well i'm trying to stay safe and sane and i hope all your listeners are too so he okay so here's where i'm at during this quarantine like this is like this is like the first time in i don't know how long where i don't really i don't really care about sports like i don't really care if nhl or nba or whatever comes back like it's crazy to think but like I, i just don't like i just like for me personally, I've been following. I've been following what's been going on at least since like end of February, middle like beginning of March, and just following what happened. In, what happened in Italy was like being four or five episodes ahead of a TV show. <laughs> like it was just like once it once it hit, it was just like okay, I, I guess I hit the acceptance phase really quickly, and like I just didn't yeah. really care like if if hockey came back. Like I think this is the first time I've had a guest on since. I had Brendan Bachelor like about a month ago, like, and I just like it was hard for me to try and book a guest and get hyped up for an interview and like try and talk about hockey when like I wake up and eight hundred people have died in Spain today. Like, it just didn't seem consequential to talk about the Canucks with really anyone. Do you, no, do you feel not. do you feel something like similar, or am I taking crazy pills here? No, no, I think that's completely reasonable. Look, the famous Riley quote is that sports are the toy department of life, right? Mm-hmm. And no one visits the toy department when life and death is sort of the topic du jour, right? And whether you're sick, whether you're on lockdown to avoid being sick and avoid spreading this, you know, virus, or whether or not you are, you know, worried about your family's future and, and putting food on the table. And I think those anxieties are widespread, super common. I, I think everyone's been touched by this in some respect, whether it's financially, medically, personally so you know i i don't think that that's an unreasonable reaction at all and you know i think i share it to some extent but at the same time you know my, my job's to talk about hockey and write about this canucks team and you know i mean sometimes you just got to put your head down and do the work and, and hope that you know for some people who are you know on lockdown maybe they're alone maybe they're with family and need just a break 
um, some sort of moment mm-hmm. of normalcy, like a, an opportunity to just read about Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson and sort of, you know, dream about better days ahead and, and the return of something like normal. Uh, you know, hopefully that helps some people. And, and that's sort of what I use to stay motivated. Um, is just, you know, trying to, trying to stay in front of the audience and hopefully help them get through a time that's challenged, you know, certainly me personally, but, but I think everybody across, you know, Canada, the globe, certainly the continent. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, you're writing a lot of, you know, I guess would be off season stuff, like stuff you would write in July, August, but at least if you were writing that in July and August during a regular year, you would know hockey's going to be back in October. So it's got to be weird for you well, to write about like Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson when it's like, well, is it is the is the season even going to be back? Yeah, I mean, and you know, I think the other thing is is in an off season mode, even if it's the dog sort of the dog days of August, you have this. You know, there's players still available. There's players still signing. Mm-hmm. There's arbitration hearings. There's teams over the cap, and what might they look to do to offload some guys? There's a variety of sort of off-season tricks that I'm familiar with. And right now, we sort of, from a coverage challenge perspective, we live in this moment where we don't know what hockey looks like. Teams can make some moves, but they're they're not really making too many. No contracts can be signed that start now. Trades can't happen. Uh, we don't even know what day the draft's going to be. Uh, all we know is that it's mm-hmm. been postponed. There's no awards show. Um, certainly there's no, like, if, say the Canucks have missed the playoffs, right? There'd be things happening in the playoffs that I could use to write about what the team needs to do next season to be competitive and on and on, right? Like, there's a rhythm and a predictability to the offseason once you've been through it a couple times that we lack right now because we're just in this sort of no man's land between the league actually making a decision on whether or not to play this season and the off season sort of beginning. So, you know, it look, certainly from our reporter's perspective, it's a challenging time, but it's, you know, a, a challenge can also be something that you take as a positive, And that's just sort of how I'm trying to look at it day to day with more success some days than others. Mm-hmm. So here's a question that I feel like every podcast has to ask any guest when they come on like at this point uh when do you think hockey's coming back because like it's just it's just this whole sorry you know you know people within the nhl and i'm sure you can give me like a fairly nuanced answer but this whole idea i'm just going to go off here this whole idea of having like a whole season under quarantine in one location just seems like ridiculous to me like it just every 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 vibe I get is like some weird hockey POW camp where you're you're sequ- where you're sequestered in a hotel, you're forced you can't go anywhere and all you're doing is getting forcing them to go go to a rink play hockey and then come back to a hotel can't see your family can't do anything just gotta hang out at a hotel, and I understand like we in BC are doing a good job. But like some of these other places, like where are you going to put it where it's unaffected? Like I'm thinking like of my cousin right now who lived in New York. She's a research assistant at NYU. My uncle had to drive up all the way from Knoxville, Tennessee, all the way up to New York, pick her up and drive her back down. Like it's, it's just wild out there. And you know, and you know, the CBA is technically a 50, 50 partnership between the owners and the players. Owners get 50% of the revenue. Players get 50% of the revenue. So the players get a sense of this as well. It's not like Gary Bettman saying, okay, we're packing up and playing two months in New Hampshire and the players have to go. They get a say. And if I'm a player, you know, most of these players, I assume, are fairly financially secure. If I'm a player, I'm like, why do I want to leave my family for two months in the middle of a global pandemic to be stuck in North Dakota or whatever? Like, is it just, am I, like, again, am I taking crazy pills here or is it just ridiculous to expect, like, them, them to finish the playoffs under quarantine, some weird POW camp in North Dakota? <laughs> so, as I understand it, it's called the Biodome Approach. And the Biodome Approach would essentially be, you know, every player, you, you move every player to outside the quarantined area that you'd ultimately be setting up, the Biodome, as it were. Everyone's is it actually going to be a Biodome? That would oh, be actually no, not pretty an cool. Actual biodome. It's called a biodome. Approach, oh, okay. Right? Which is which is the idea that everyone quarantines outside the biodome. You take deep cleaned, disinfected buses in. 
you know, every all support staff, everyone goes through that, and then you have this sort of you know insulated community essentially that permits you to uh, potentially do some activities like playing hockey, um, you know, in a secure way away from the virus, and obviously you sort of. Uh, compound that with rigorous testing and, and on and on. But, I mean, to even get there, you'd need to be at a point where, you know, uh, society has stabilized enough that you can travel everyone relatively safely and that your use of tests and medical personnel, right, because you have to essentially set up your own hospital yeah. within this biodome, um, wouldn't be a drain on the public need and on and on. And we're not we're not close. Like we're months from that. And, you know, for all that, what I've just laid out, like we're talking about millions and millions of dollars of investment to set this up and it can be scuttled with one positive test. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I mean, to me, that sounds like I've seen enough zombie movies to know how that ends. <laughs> right. And yeah. it doesn't sound super practical to me. Now, in the event that we are able to ramp up testing and maintain social distance in a disciplined manner, you know, across North America, uh, which do- doesn't look like we're going to do, uh, certainly not based on what's uh, occurred in states like Georgia and Tennessee uh, oh, today. Ridiculous. But, but the, you know, if we're able to be disciplined for a couple more months and use those months to correct, you know, the, the, sort of policy errors that we've made as a Western society in terms of, you know, not doing enough to ramp up uh, testing capacity, contact tracing, etc. cetera, um, you know, then perhaps hockey could return without fans in sort of a softer sort of format. But again, it seems to me that we're months away. So, you know, realistically, do I think they're going to be able to finish the 1920 season? No. However, do I think they're going to rush to make that decision? No, because, at the end of the day, you're talking about a business, right? That yeah. was forecasting a billion dollars in additional revenue, essentially, over the next four months. And instead, over a six-week span, has seen that projection go from one billion to zero. Now, any business right, that goes yeah. through that kind of shock has to make some extraordinary decisions, right? Um, and in order to ensure that the NHL does not, or at least do everything they can to avoid making some of the decisions that might come with that. And, you know, things like um, forget forget 35% escrow. Or, you know, players played 11% escrow this season. Forget 35% even. Like, could it be 50 next year if mm-hmm. the season doesn't come back? Could we be looking at a salary cap that's in the 50, 60 million dollar range? You know, I, I mean, you can understand why both sides, players and owners, would be extremely reluctant. Like, would do everything possible to avoid that eventuality. So... You know, I think the the fact of the matter is is that there are ways to play hockey. There are ways that are extremely difficult. There are ways that are less difficult. But until things stabilize on a societal level, hockey's not coming back, even without fans. And even when it does, I think it's going to be extraordinarily fragile, and it's going to require a high level of individual and organizational discipline, not just from teams, not just from players, but also from, you know, whatever sort of area, whatever local, civic, state, provincial, county government that ends up hosting some kind of an event um, of that scale. Mm-hmm. I know, and I was talking to like a, a few of my friends about this today, and my and my point was it feels like every league's just playing like a giant game of chicken at this point no one wants to be that first league to cancel the season it's like a rudy gobert situation none of these leagues are going to say the the season's suspended until someone tested positive right so no everyone's just kind of like you said everyone's just playing this weird waiting game as to see like oh well i don't want to be the first one to cancel how about you guys well and then there's also one thing to take into account too is going to be the differences between sports right you know in the case of golf for example we could see that back sooner because it lends itself well to social distancing best practices hockey basketball indoor sports uh they don't and so i I do think you know hockey and basketball especially and and maybe hockey in particular because of the equipment because of the sweat Mm -hmm. um because of the close quarters you know I, i do think that those sports have various challenges above and beyond that that even a sport like the nfl or 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 the epl etc might be dealing with 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like again, I'm gonna go back to like what's happening in Italy. Like they canceled the the Serie A season, like the main league over in Italy on March 4th, and originally the report was okay, we're gonna cancel until April 4th. Then it got okay. Then everyone realized, well, this is pretty bad, so let's could do May 4th. And now it's a situation where they may not. They may not can't they may not finish the season. Like it's almost gonna be yeah. impossible to finish the season. And I think well, yeah. I think that's where we're at with hockey is like people Especially are just gonna keep putting us that half of Juventus is starting eleven, like tested positive. Oh yeah. Right? I mean uh, you know, uh, for sure. Uh, look, the, I if I was a betting man, I would not be betting on the resumption of hockey this season. I'd be hopeful, cautiously optimistic that hockey can be played at some point this calendar year, uh, at which point I would I would sort of be leaning toward um, an expectation that hopefully, maybe, the 2020-21 season can start with, you know, some delay as opposed to the idea of a 1920 regular season and playoffs being being played. I mean, that is something I, I really don't see. Mm-hmm. And sorry, I just gonna got one more question on the subject. You've yeah. you've you've like worked with NHL team like. Not only do the players have to be under quarantine, but all the staff involving with each team would have to theoretically. How many? How many? How much staff would there have to be outside of like players and like oh, hockey management at a so at a many. game? So many. I mean, to to you know, if you're talking about say a 2014 playoff in some kind of quarantine zone, you're also talking about on ice officials, right? Yeah. Um, you, you know, to get that volume of games in, like you're talking about at least 30 bodies there, I think. And then, you know, you're probably talking about an additional 100 to 120 uh, off-ice officials. Um, you're probably talking about, you know, coaching staff for each team. Um, you're pro- you're at, at 10 per team there. Uh, then sort of support staff, medical staff, you know, teams, the staff size of, of NHL teams has exploded. So, I mean, you're probably adding 30 bodies there. Then there's broadcast technicians, you know, the camera people, yeah. the broadcast talent, um, you know, and then, and then catering staff, um, who's cleaning the hotels, uh, who's doing laundry, right? Like, on and on. I mean, I, I think you, you get up pretty quickly to 2,000, 3,000 people at least, maybe more. Um, and that's sort of, you know, without even... <laughs> getting into execs and owners and family members and on and on. So, you know, I mean, look, logistically it would be quite the mess uh, to organize. And, and then remember too, that for it to actually go off, it needs to, it needs to be foolproof. Like it needs to, you can't, uh, one positive test test risks the whole, you know, apparatus you've constructed. So, you know, <laughs> there's a variety of reasons why I'm not optimistic and that's among them. Mm-hmm. So, you wrote about J.T. Miller recently, and I know uh, in one of the recent episodes of the Bandcast, you were talking about, well, I was expecting this to be, you know, just a kind of a day in the, a week in the life article, and it turned out to be something completely different. And yep. I got a very similar vibe from that article to when I talked to Brandon Bachelor when, you know, they canceled these and everyone thought it was going to be like a two-week thing, and no one expected, you know, for this whole season to be canceled. Everyone thought like maybe two weeks a month top. Is that kind of like the vibe you got from, you know, JT Miller and a lot of the Canucks where they thought it would be like two, three week thing? Well, I don't know that anyone, I mean, me personally, the moment, the moment I began to understand better the way that we were a week, like the way that this virus is essentially a time machine, right? So you are paying the price for what happened two weeks ago, right? Yeah. At, at any given moment. Um, once I sort of understood that and understood you know, the R not and all these other sort of um, phrases that I've learned spending a ton of time on epidemiology Twitter over the past month. Yeah, I felt like I was back in science class, like back in, or like mid-March. The only growth area in the economy is the armchair (laughs) epidemiologists. Um, But uh, but look, I, you know, once I sort of began to understand that, I I didn't think this would be short. And so, you know, I I certainly don't think I shared that sense with Brendan Batchelor and, and, you know, JT Miller, I think JT, for example, I think he was pretty caught off guard just because he was so, you know, the week that I covered him anyway, it was four games in seven days, right? It was, it was play 22 minutes, rest, play 23 minutes, rest, play 25 minutes, rest, play 24 minutes, season canceled, you know, (laughs) he was blindsided. So, um, you know, and I think a lot of 
pro athletes were. Like you live in this bubble, essentially, where you're just focused on two points night in, night out. And I think a lot of people in pro sports who live like that, who, you know, by necessity, keep it simple so that they can, you know, have no excuses and just focus on the on-ice results. Um, you know, I think they were blindsided by it, just like, you know, Western governments, most individuals. Um, and, you know, now I think there's a widespread appreciation for an understanding of the fact that we're, you know, in a holding pattern with no discernible, obvious route out. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. So, sorry, I just want to get into a bit of your just overall career. When did you have your sort of come to Jesus moment when you said, you know what, this is something I want to do, writing about sports, covering sports. This is something I can do. Yeah, look, it, I don't know that I had a moment. I think the, to be totally honest with you, I was working in marketing, social media marketing in Toronto. And, um, you know, I had a Twitter account that had a few followers, like a few thousand followers. And I'd used that actually to get my social media job. And, uh, you know, I was writing for uh, the Vancouver Sun through their Pasadabulas blog. Uh, Pasadabulas at the time was the Vancouver Sun. And I was running Canucks Army and, you know, I was making some good money, like off to the side, you know, just enough to make rent essentially when I, back in the, back when I was in my early twenties and had a roommate and, you know, all of a sudden my company sold, the company I was working for got sold and I got laid off. And so I had, you know, some decent severance and I had this steady income from my freelance writing. And rather than, go back and, and sort of try and find a marketing job or something that, you know, I, I mean, I could have done, but didn't really interest me. I figured I'd, I'd give it a shot. Like I just give it a go. And I would, you know, the thing that stands out to me the most about the five or six months, this was the right after the end of the 2012, 13 lockout. So the end of February, 2013, I'm laid off. And for the rest of that season, I was just like, look, I'm going to focus on writing every day and taking every opportunity I can and trying to maximize my freelance holdings and doing nothing but write. And I'm going to see if I can make this work. And I sort of gave myself a deadline. I said, if I can't, if I don't have a full-time job in sports media by August, then I'll go into back into the workforce, the traditional workforce. And so, you know, I just, I just grinded, man. Like I just wrote you know, multiple times a day at just about every outlet. Like I was writing for the sporting news. I was writing for vice Canada. I was writing for, uh, certainly the nation network. I was, you know, pitching stuff to the score all the time. I was pitching stuff, um, you know, a variety of other places. I was writing for Dauber. I was doing the Sunday ramblings at Dauber. Um, you know, I was just writing everywhere and, and getting as much work in as I could and, and trying to improve as much as I could as a writer. And, so I remember it was the 2013 draft. I go down to uh, New Jersey uh, where the draft was at Newark. And that's, of course, the draft where the Canucks trade Corey Schneider. And I remember, mm-hmm. you know, just scrambling. Like I was I was filing stories for like four different outlets. Um, you know, I just had an insane um, sort of load uh, in terms of my workload. And my day completely blew up when the Canucks uh, traded Corey Snyder. And that was also the year that the draft was all held in one day. Um, So that was like the worst day of my life, to be totally honest with you. Like, I think I worked 19 hours. Like, I worked and then got on a flight. Was that because of the lockout? They had it all one day? all in one day. And it was just a complete mess. And so, but I remember I worked right through the night in New York and go, you know, go directly to the airport, fly home. And when I landed in Vancouver or in Toronto, excuse me, which is where I lived at the time, I, uh, I fell asleep. I passed out. And when I woke up, I'd missed a message. Um, and the message was from the score and they were offering me a job to go work full time as a news editor for them. So, uh, it all worked out. I ended up in a full time role at the score, worked there for two years and then ended up going to Sportsnet, uh, and then ended up going to the Panthers. And, and now I'm back in Vancouver covering the Canucks for the athletic, um, which is really the dream. And, you know, I couldn't be happier with how it's all turned out. Like, it's been a lot of fun. I've got to know some great people. I've had a really eclectic set of experiences that I think have prepared me really well for, you know, all kinds of weirdness, like all kinds of odd situations. Um, You know, I I feel like I have perspective to bring to all of them. And 
that it's helped me a ton, like even over the last two weeks as I've sort of adjusted my own content operations for this sportsless world. Uh, you know, the variety of experience that I've had over the course of my career, I think has set me up well to tackle that. So, you know, it's, uh, it's been a ride and it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, if, if any of your listeners are, you know, aspiring sports media folks, like, you know, the only, the only thing I can sort of share from my experience was, you know, I got to know a, a wide range of people and I loved it. Like, I loved it. I couldn't see myself realistically doing anything else. And when I thought about it, I was just like, you know, I have to do this. Like, this is something I feel I have to do. I won't be happy if uh, if I don't at least give this everything I've got and see if I can figure it out and make it work. And obviously it paid off for me, but it required a lot of sacrifice. It required a lot of work. Uh, certainly I sacrificed going out every Saturday night of my 20s. <laughs> Um, and that's, you know, sort of par for the course. Like the idea of a Canada Day party does not exist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, uh, that's free agency day, uh, on and on. Like there's sacrifices that, that this lifestyle entails. And so, you know, if, but if you want it, you can make it happen, especially in this world where distribution is so flat in terms of content. Like if you're doing good work, people will see it. Um, so just focus on churning it out, focus on doing it consistently, focus on building relationships and honing your craft and and sort of the sky's the limit but it does come at a cost and and it does require you know a a level of gumption discipline and sacrifice um that you really need to you know commit to uh if you're going to make it all sort of come together what okay first first two things first of all that was super inspirational. I'm ready to run through like a brick wall after hearing that. That was like Al Pacino on any given Sunday, like level of inspiration. Like I'm definitely, I'm, I, exactly. I'm clipping that. You know what that reminded me of? That reminded me of that Stephen A. Smith clip where he's talking about, I was a general reporter, then a sports columnist. I came from the gutter. Thomas Grant, you came from the gutter. I like it. From the very bottom and worked your way up. Yeah. Also, second thing. You said you lived in Toronto. How did you escape becoming like a Toronto guy that's just despised in Vancouver? Um, I, I don't know. I think it's because I was always uh, covering the Canucks. So I, I just like was clearly one of us, you know? But you lived in uh, Toronto. That should, that should knock off some points. Yeah. And well, and look, I get some, I get some shit for my Raptors fandom and my, and my uh, Blue Jays fandom from, you know, certain segments of Canucks Twitter. Uh, but look, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of Vancouverites who move on, do other things. And, you know, I, I just think that, um, I don't know, honestly, I don't know. at the end of the day, I'm not really sure. I think that because I'm from here, because I was interacting so constantly with the Vancouver sort of side uh, of hockey Twitter and, and you know, <laughs> news mm-hmm. Twitter, um, I sort of escaped the, the tar that often comes with uh, being a resident of the six. Yeah, so before I uh, before I ask you about your time being Panthers PR guy, which I'm really interested in, I want to ask you about your book, 100 Things Canucks Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. I remember reading it yeah. when it first came out. I loved it. It's by you and Mike Halford. Uh, how much did you write and how much did Mike Halford write? Like, be honest here. Yeah, so no, was it no, even no. 50-50 split or was it like no. a bit more for you? No, I'd say it's like 85-15% me. Um, <laughs> the... What That's why you got I first got... billing up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's alphabetical. But the uh, the uh, what happened is I was nearly finished the book when the Panthers approached me. Oh, okay. And I didn't think it was appropriate in my sort of role as a public-facing exec with the Panthers to be promoting a book covering another team at the same time. So I went to the publisher and I said, "Look, you can still have my work." Um, so long as we bring another a co-author on to finish the project, because the Panthers are this Panthers job's going to demand my full attention, and to handle the promotional side uh, of the you know contractual obligations that I've agreed to, and they said that was fine, and, and so I approached Mike, and, and Mike sort of took that on, and you know did, did a good job um, finishing up the book, and um, you know I think his chapters are probably much better than mine, to be honest. Which and, ones are his chapters? Um, most of the ones toward the end. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but look, he did a great job and he's the best. I mean, I've always enjoyed working with Mike Halford. Um, I've always enjoyed talking with him on the radio and I really, like, he really did me a solid helping me with the book. And, you know, I think, um, you know, he's, he's a great collaborator in, in all respects. Like he's the best to host radio with. He's the best to guest on radio with. He's a great guy to drink with. 
Um, great guy to write a book with. So, no, look, I'm really proud of that You've work. done everything with Mike Halford. Drink, write a book, <laughs> radio. Yeah. yeah. He, uh, I, I, you know, I have a lot of regard for him. I think he's a great guy. And, uh, and I really appreciate him doing me the solid that he did, uh, finishing that book and, and taking it on. And, um, you know, it was a lot of fun. I'm really proud of the work, ultimately. Uh, I still sort of look back on that fondly and, you know, enjoyed the challenge. And, and I'm hopeful that maybe the Canucks can, you know, uh, do make some noise here. Like I think if the Canucks make some noise here in the playoffs at some point in the next couple of years, I'll I'll be able to update the book and sort of do a reissue um, and update it with some Pedersen stories and some Hughes stories. Uh, you know, sort of maybe finish um, the project that I sort of had to abandon about halfway through, and and hopefully that sort of time comes to pass. Not just because that'll mean. A, hockey's back, and B, well, the hockey that Vancouver fans are watching is interesting. Um, but but also just because, you know, abandoning something I worked that hard on uh, that close to the finish line was certainly not an easy decision um, for me to make. So what part of researching this book did you look back and think like, damn, how do the Canucks even exist <laughs> like from this from this situation, like because I remember reading the book and there are so many ridiculous like stories, especially from the early days, like the first twenty years, like the seventies and eighties. Yeah, look, the it was a different time, right? And and some of the stuff that I found most fascinating, I think, was like how it was a wild west in terms of player acquisition out of uh, out of the fall of the Iron Curtain and and everything that sort of happened with the Makarov, Krutov, Larionov lines and. You know, the Pavel Bure stories. I mean, I, I found that stuff completely fascinating. Uh, so cloak and dagger, you know, the Illich plane flying to meet guys after they've sort of faked being brain dead and bribed doctors and on and on. I mean, just tremendous stuff. And then the Canucks in the 70s. I mean, that was just an unmitigated shit show the whole time. So, uh, look, a lot of fun to learn about that. And when I think back to writing that book, you know, what I sort of look back most fondly on was you know, doing the research in the stacks and, and biking out to Etobicoke from uh, downtown Toronto and, and just kind of setting up and doing the research. And then I spent three weeks in uh, Salt Spring, sort of ensconced, uh, just drinking dark liquor and um, hitting the beach on occasion for, for a break. Um, and that's where I really did the bulk of my work and, you know, a variety of fun conversations that, you know, with, with major Canucks figures of the past. Uh, that I find illuminating, that I still sort of draw on, and, and that I think gave me a really well-rounded understanding, much better than I had prior to writing the book, about sort of, you know, some of the roots uh, that this team has and how that continues to impact them and, and sort of the, you know, perception of in this city of the franchise, um, even among fans who don't actually know some of the stories, like some of the attitudes, some of the mores have still trickled down, so... Uh, look, I had a lot of fun composing that project, and, and it's still something I'm really proud of. Absolutely. So I want to talk about now about a bit of your time with the Florida Panthers. Now, before I get into your actual, like, how you decided to take the job, uh, recently on an episode of Silky and Filthy, uh, fellow uh, show on the Next Misconduct Network, Kyle Bauer and Trevor Beggs, they they did not mince words on the Florida Panthers. They they went off on the Florida Panthers. And as the only kind of guy I know who's connected to the Florida Panthers, I'm going to give you an official chance to rebuttal on this. Okay. So, well, I didn't hear it, so you'll have yeah. to summarize. No, okay. I'll quickly summarize. So essentially, they just ripped on the Florida Panthers and said they should move to Nova Scotia. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, Nova Scotia, I don't think, has the corporate base necessarily to support NHL hockey. Uh, but look, Nova Scotia is a great great spot to visit obviously there in my thoughts today uh based on the tragedy that happened Absolutely. there in that province yesterday uh just unspeakable and um you know I, I mean just a great hockey place i've seen some loose heads games um in my day you know after after hitting some split rope power hours but I, but i have nothing but love uh, for nova scotia that said you know the florida panthers um they have some arena trouble but i think the importance of the Miami market, uh, the Miami television market, the tri-county area. I mean, we're talking about three counties from West Palm down to, you know, Miami-Dade that, you know, there's only 30 million people who live there in the next two, three years. And so if you're going to be a national league and you're going to have a major TV rights deal, um, it's pretty important to be penetrating that market. Now, you know, there's a variety of sort of things that 
need to happen for the Panthers to resonate a little more more strongly in that community. Namely, they need to have a little bit more on-ice success than they've had historically or in my time there. But um, nonetheless, I, I mean, I think that's a project worth sort of seeing and from the seeing through and from the interactions that I've had. Like, you know, I know people freak out with the photos of the empty stands and on and on. Yeah. It's like the BBC what, what's your, what's the your biggest... official PR stance on that? No, well, the BB, first of all, the cameras are pointed at the club area, and the club area is open bar and buffet. Oh, okay. And if you have those seats, you're going to spend a lot of time not in them because you're going to be drinking and watching on the screens up top and socializing, and that's kind of what that experience is about. So it always looks worse on TV than it is oh, okay. in fact. So like, okay. It, you know, at the end of the day, you know, without, there's no papering, like, it, really. The, the fact of the matter is, is that the Panthers draw – solidly like 15k attendance on on the weekends and and 10 on weekdays and if you had a barn that housed you know 15,000 fans like they have in Winnipeg the environment would feel completely different it's just that that's a big cavernous barn out in the swamp um which is difficult to fill and you know that's sort of where some of those those challenges and that meme kind of comes from but you know I think that Ultimately, there are some really diehard fans there who I got to interact with and know uh, a little bit while I was down there, and, and I think that they deserve hockey just as much as any Canadian marketplace does. Uh, I hope for their sake that the team gets some momentum behind them and uh, and has a chance to sort of earn sort of the mainstream love that only comes in South Florida if you win, uh, because I think that could be a pretty great hockey market and a pretty great hockey destination. Uh, if they can sort of, you know, get some of the on-ice results that you need to build that momentum. But, look, I think, um, I, I suspect that, you know, those, your your colleagues who sort of ranted about the Panthers uh, aren't necessarily very well seen in some of the sort of mechanics uh, that brought... You can call them idiots. Like, place. I'm not going to be personally offended by <laughs> no, that. No, I just, I just don't think they probably have a, have a holistic understanding. And, um, you know, it's not an uncommon sort of thing to hear. Uh, it's not something that bothers me or anything. It's just that, you know, having been down there for as long as I was, having seen what the Panthers mean to those who support them in that community, um, and having sort of witnessed the potential. I mean, you know, we're talking about a franchise that's made the playoffs twice this century so far. Um, yeah. So it's hard to build momentum, especially in that South Florida market, uh, which is a pretty eccentric sports market to begin with. Uh, with those kind of on-ice results, uh, I think if things turned around on the ice, that you know the situation they'd be looking at is is extraordinarily different. Absolutely. So, how did you end up taking the job? Like, what intrigued you about becoming like a public relations guy with the Florida Panthers of all teams? And what's maybe one thing that surprised you about being behind the scenes of an NHL team that, as a fan or even a journalist, you didn't really you know think about? Well, I just think the thing that surprised me probably was just the hours. When you're sports staff, it's 24-7, right? Like, that was the most demanding job. Like, I thought I worked hard as a journalist. I do work hard as a journalist. I work constantly. Uh, But the work ethic required to, you know, be senior support staff with an NHL team is a a whole other level. Um, And that surprised me, but ultimately was a welcome challenge and something that I learned a lot from. And that's the same reason that I took the job, too. It was something completely different, something that I found interesting, uh, something that I thought would, you know, make me a more well-rounded hockey sort of media professional all around. And, um, you know, no regrets. I really enjoyed my time there. I really got to meet some great people, some great players. Uh, Had a lot of fun. So uh, I'm happy I did it. Um, I'm also happy that I'm back where I am in Vancouver covering the Canucks for, you know, the most engaged fan base in the, in the league. Uh, but I learned a lot down there and, and had a great time. Mm-hmm. So were you there when Yager was there? I was. Oh, yeah. okay. You got to tell me, you got to share like a Yager story if you can. Like, like I'm one of the biggest legends of the game. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, look, Yager, Yager took a little bit to warm up. Like I took a little bit of time to get Yager to warm up to me. Um, I ultimately figured out that you have to exist on Yager time. And and once I understood what Yager time was and how to respect it and play by those rules, he was actually one of the easiest guys to deal with uh, ever. So, look, he's an absolute beauty. Hardest working guy I've ever seen. Um, you know, he, uh, I mean, the, the Yager stories that I, that I can tell anyway, like, 
Yager makes a smoothie after the ice, after he gets off the ice, and he makes it or he mixes it by pouring it from one cup to another. And one one thing that you need to like understand about Yager time is like his mixing time is like time he doesn't want to deal with you. And you know, so there would be these times where he'd sort of see the my shoes because I'm standing by it and I need him to talk to like X national reporter or BBC reporter or, you know, LA Times reporter. Like Yager drew in more media than your average bear yeah. for obvious reasons. He's Absolute beauty, legend. like you said. Yeah. So uh, but the, uh, you know, he's just doing that and you just kind of have to wait him out. And once you wait him out, like once, uh, once you wait him out for something really long. And I remember there was a particular media ask that I waited like a really long time to get him to fulfill on a, on a practice day when we were in San Jose. And, uh, and he, I guess, appreciated it. And so he was like, let's go for sushi. And so, uh, so I ended up having sushi with y'all. Oh, that's San awesome. Jose, and that's, uh, that's a standout career highlight for me. I feel like Yager for the NHL is almost like Michael Jordan in the sense that maybe not like in terms of like all all time great, although he is up there. Like just about the legendary stories that surround Yager is very much like Michael Jordan. Maybe that's a bit of recency bias because I just finished watching The Last Dance before I yep. before I did this interview. But Yager is like one of those players who just has so many legendary stories like surrounding him as a character. Yeah, no, I think that's a probably a fair comparison. Yeah. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, my other question about Florida: what, What's your Florida? Do you have any interactions with Florida Man? That's the like the, the <laughs> mythical character known Atlanta as Florida character. Man. Um, look, I mean, I was a Florida Man. Right? Yeah. So, so every day what, what, I had an interaction with Florida Man because that became me. Um, so did you end so up yeah. like eating some guys like face off or anything like that? <laughs> Nothing like that. No, I never, I never sampled the bath salts, but um, you know, I. I <laughs> I mean, look, Florida is a great spot. Honestly, it's a it's a beautiful place. Like, I you know, I'm, you know, I had a place with a view of the intercoastal and uh, waking up and, and just enjoying the sunshine every day. I mean, that's something I definitely miss, especially on the 45th consecutive rainy day uh, in February in Vancouver. So, um, you know, I, I honestly have nothing but good things to say about Florida generally. Um, and, and I really enjoyed my time there. And despite being a Florida man for two and a half months, I never felt the urge to do anything crazy, like drive my car into a Wendy's, but yeah, you didn't um, blow a point three three nine and then get a DUI in a golf cart. Well, and so, you know, the Florida man thing though, it's because of the sunshine laws, Florida discloses arrests with a level of transparency well above and beyond that of a routine state. So what news editors and reporters and on and on do on slow news days is you just go and check as a result of the sunshine laws, the law, the arrest log in Florida. So it's not necessarily that there's actually crazier stuff <laughs> happening in Florida than there is on average, although there probably is. Um, it's actually just a uh, result of the Florida sunshine laws that has sort of made that such a popular uh, news and information meme over the years. See, I thought it, I wanted it to be sort of like the, like, like they did in Atlanta where Florida right. man's actually just one person just doing all this crazy <laughs> shit. I, I mean, look, that was a hilarious formulation, but no, I, I, unfortunately it's actually just the result of a uh, uncharacteristically progressive public policy. Mm-hmm. So, you were the Florida PR, a Florida PR guy for a while, and then you decided to come back to Vancouver and work for the Athletic. What was the pro- decision process behind deciding to come back to Vancouver? Were you just a bit homesick? Did you want to get back into like writing? Like, what was the reason behind coming back to Vancouver and specifically working for the Athletic? I guess. Yeah, well, there was a lot that went into it. Uh, of course, I mean, there were a variety of personal calculations that I made on a family level. My family's all here. Yeah. Uh, which was a big draw and you know the opportunity to work with the athletic was you know, really out to me especially because I really believed in their mission uh, I really believed in you know Adam Hansman and, and James Myrtle and Craig Custance and all the sort of leadership folks uh, there Dan Kaufman too um, you know I believed in the vision that they were articulating as as the conversations I had with them sort of got more serious and, and at the end of the day I missed it like I missed more directly telling hockey stories and when you look over some of the work I've been able to do this year like sitting down with the Sedin twins for a video session breaking yeah. down their greatest shifts that was a great article that was just so informative or or the oral history of the dragon slayer goal on and on like those are real career highlights for me and, you know I'm glad that I jumped at the opportunity that I did mm-hmm. so sorry I'm just eating my hamburger right now 
Uh, homemade, by the way. It's delicious. Good for you. Um, sorry. Um, what's your um, what's been your biggest outside of those two articles? Like, what's been your biggest highlight working for the Athletics so far? Well, we've got a great team in Vancouver. We have a, a tremendous editor named Nyoko Asano, um, who's just a, an absolute absolute pleasure to work with uh she's the type of editor who genuinely improves everything she touches and you know that's the highest compliment you can give um to an editor so she's been great to work with i've loved getting to know and and work with Harmon dial uh, i've had a great time doing the van cast with jpat and of course you know being you know with tsn 40 and getting a chance to host with the afternoon guys and the morning guys and, and being a regular and then at the end of the day, like, the thing that I enjoy the most is just the day-to-day banter in this market that's just relentless. Like, it's just a relentless hockey market. I imagine it's not argument. the same in Florida. No, it's not. And it's not the same anywhere. Anywhere else. Nowhere else is the same. And the unique pattern and the passion and the knowledge base of this fan base in this hockey market is unrivaled and just the best. Like, it's just so much fun. And so to cover this sort of exciting young team, um, you know, it's a flawed team still. There's work to be done. But to cover guys like Pedersen and Hughes and to get to do it for these hockey fans and get to engage with that daily uh, and to do it, you know, at an outlet and for a subscriber base built by, you know, Jason Botchford, who uh, was my close personal friend before his untimely passing um, almost exactly 12 months ago. Um, you know, to do it for that audience, especially, um, is an honor, a privilege, uh, and a responsibility that, that I've really enjoyed, uh, that I've really taken seriously. And honestly, it's just been the most fun year that I've had, uh, from a professional vantage point, at least until six weeks ago when the world kind of shut down. Mm. So I got to ask you, since you brought up about Jason Bosch right now, I talked to one of my fellow guests of the show, Armin Dial, boy, genius. I am on to ask him about what Jason Bosch meant to him and he had obviously nothing but great things to say did you have a sort of a similar relationship with botch that Harmon did like would you say it's similar or like very close in terms of like professionally yeah i mean i i think the difference is that you know i I just go back a little bit further but you know botch and i started a lengthy correspondence about 10 years ago and you know he meant a lot to my career gave me some timely advice always vouched for me um always had my back uh was just someone who i could speak to you know for professional advice shoot the shit with trade gossip um and you know and when when botch and i were at the rink together like i wasn't on the beat but i was covering the team but occasionally i'd go and be on the road or occasionally i'd be here for a month uh, just sort of being at every game during the connects homestand or what have you and mm-hmm. you know during those times like when we were both at the ring um we were pretty much just laughing the whole time and uh and essentially inseparable um and you know i miss that like i, mi- I miss that every day uh covering the team and you know, i know jpat does and i know um, there's a lot of us who feel the same way but um the reason that i have a similar take to Harmon is botch mentored a lot of the young writers in this market um, it was something that came effortlessly to him and it came effortlessly to him because he was genuinely interested in the news media business. He believed that good coverage should be supported and he tried to make everyone better in terms of the young writers that he had a chance to cross paths with. And, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. Like, it's not easy to mentor a whole generation of fans, but if the themes ever showed or if it was ever work, um, that was never evident. Like, it looked... Like, it was just something he wanted to do and something that he cared about. And, and I think it looked that way because it was that way. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, that's sort of that's sort of my uh, my, my reminiscence. Um, I just miss him. Yeah, I think I can speak for all Canucks fans. We miss, we miss him as well. And I still, hey, I still remember the day I found out he passed away. I just saw on Twitter, like, someone tweeted out, oh, Jason Botcher has passed away. I'm like, what? No, this can't be real. It's like one of those very surreal moments that you'll probably remember for a while it's wild to think that you know of all things uh, a hockey journalist can have that reaction but i think jason botchford got the whole us against the world mentality that canucks fans have better than maybe most other journalists out there <laughs> i think any other journalists out there yeah. um no I'm, look, i mean he was a special talent and takes a special talent to resonate the way he did mm-hmm. 
So what I what I've been doing on this podcast since uh, there's not really much current events to talk about. I've been breaking down each week a specific season from a player in Canucks history. Last week I did. You probably heard of this player, Patrick Sundstrom, 1983-84 season, first guy to get yep. over 90 points. I never really heard about this guy. Like I was born in 94. I don't really know about Patrick Sundstrom. He was around 10 years before I did, I came around. But he was he was a really good player. Like he was an awesome player and it was interesting to read about Patrick Sundstrom all players. And what I what I want to talk about this week is Luongo's first season with the Vancouver Canucks at 06-07 season. What was your what was your initial reaction? when he found out Luongo was coming to the Vancouver Canucks way back in the day? Because I got a very vivid, like, like memory yeah, of coming, too. him coming over. Me too. I mean, Luongo was the biggest name in goaltending uh, likely to move. And, you know, he was the sort of player that the Canucks had never had. And he was a superstar. Like, he was a super-duper star. And he just cemented himself as that with a, you know, I think it's a 917 over 76 games with the Canucks that season. And then... You know, he had a ridiculous, like, 940 in, uh, what, it must have been 13 playoff games, including yeah. the double OT or the triple OT shutout win uh, against the Dallas Stars to sort of open that series, the first-round series win. So, you know, you can't play much better. <laughs> you really yeah. can't. And, you know, as I sort of look back, I like to do some revisionist, no revisionist history, but it's fun to look back at a season like that and update it with what we know now about human performance, right? Because at the time, it was just this, there was this idea that you were the workhorse starter, yeah. you went every night. And now we know about, you know, fatigue and goalie workload and managing that workload and how goalies sort of atrophy when they play back-to-backs and on and on. So, you know, when I look back now to that season, I, I sort of wonder, like, could Luongo have been even better in the playoffs if he'd played... Oh. 15 f- fewer games that season like what where could his save percentage have been considering how dialed in and locked in and completely dominant he was if you know he'd sort of existed in a world where a, a priority of the organization had been to limit him to 55 starts how many more games would he have played how, how much better would his hips have been for longer because um, he was still in good shape when he retired it's just that his you know hips and his body were sore all the time right like yeah. he just couldn't do it anymore and so you know, you wonder those things when you look back at it in retrospect, because the load, the gargantuan workload that he held down that season was probably more than any human being can actually sustain, um, at least in terms of putting in consistently performance that he managed it anyway, is, uh, is, you know, especially playing a demanding technical style that he did in that butterfly. Uh, I mean, it's an absolute marvel and just a testament to a great, dedicated athlete in person. Mm-hmm, absolutely. You're, you said, would the Canucks have made a bigger run if he played 55 games? Would, it, would they have even made the playoffs at all if Luong only played 55 games? I remember yeah, my, 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 vi- my visceral memory of that season is the Canucks couldn't score, so they would have to rely on Luongo to bail them out, and every game would be like 2-1. I don't know yeah. if the numbers really back me up on that, but that's my like no, searing, that's, ne- that's searing memory that he just couldn't no, score. And that's a that's a fair thought, but I'm just I'm just putting it out there that with what we know about goaltending performance now, you know, yeah. like you would Luongo never play Luongo, a goalie seventy plus games now. That just wouldn't happen. No. And Luongo got blasted as he went along in Vancouver for you know playoff performance, even though his career playoff save percentage is identical to his career reg- regular season save percentage. But the fact of the matter is, is that as he started to hit games eighty five to ninety a season you started to see a pattern with him where he'd either be lights out and give you a shutout or one goal against on 40 shots, or he'd give up four, right? Like his consistency that like the two goal game disappeared from his arsenal once he played like 85 plus starts. Um, and that obviously had consequences for the Canucks in the second round a couple of times. And then the Stanley cup final in June, the one year they actually did manage his workload. So, you know, again, I just think it's, one of those things where you look back and you wonder, uh, with all that we've learned about human performance over the last 10 years, should, you know, would the Canucks have been even more potent during their glory years in the postseason if Longo had maybe been managed in a more modern way? I mean, I think that's a, that's a great what if, uh, something that I've certainly spent some time thinking about as I consider Longo's Vancouver legacy. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, here's my memory of when, uh, when Luongo got traded. So, before, okay, before, do you remember the 2006 trade deadline? I remember it very well 
because for some reason my school had a day off the same day and me and my I was over at my cousin's house and we were playing video games and kind of checking like TSN website the primitive TSN website back in the day to see like what was happening and my my uncle busts in and he's like hey Nick the Canucks just traded Todd Bertuzzi for Roberto Luongo and I'm like what no well, no way we like, got a goalie he's like psych and just walks out of the room <laughs> Wow. Yeah, he completely gaslit me. And wow, I, what, a, what a premonition. Though. Yo, it was 100% a huge premonition. And flat, and fast forward to June, it was it was like a nice June morning. It was like the second day. Of, it was supposed to be the Saturday of the draft. I run downstairs. I'm all ready to, you know, do whatever. I was probably going to watch cartoons or play some more GameCube. And my dad's sitting down there, and he just says, power's out. So I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't play my video games. So I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do? And he uh, he says, oh, by the way, Canucks trade for Luongo. And I'm like, what, really? And I, I remember seeing the back page of the Vancouver province. There was a picture of Luongo, like Canucks get Luongo. And my reaction was, finally, we finally have a goaltender. Even as 12 years old, I didn't even watch that many Florida Panthers games that year. All I remember was playing NHL 06 and Luongo was the best goalie in the game. So I'm like, okay, so we got one of the best goalies in the game now. Back then, that was like my big knowledge of the Florida Panthers. But but you're right. He was an absolute workhorse that year. And he said, correct me if I'm wrong, but he had 47 wins. And that was going to be a record until Brodeur broke it. He broke it He broke it the same year. He like right. Brodeur had like something like 48 or something like that. And I, remember being, I don't remember that specifically, but Luongo got robbed for the Vezina. Yeah, I remember being very, very choked that Luongo somehow did not get the Vezina. And... Uh, yeah, you, you mentioned like a 2007 playoffs. He won them that series. Like you can go even go disregard like the first like triple overtime, quadruple overtime, whatever it was game against Dallas. They had to have like Luongo be lights out every yeah. night for them to, to beat Dallas. And well, the fact that they beat the Anaheim Ducks at all is <laughs> pretty yeah. incredible. That yeah. team was outrageously good. Niedermeyer and Pronger, like even if a le- them- rest, rest of Luongo, how are you going to beat that? Did the Canucks take them six or five? Against Doug? No, it was five games. That was the yeah. uh, that was the infamous game where Luongo uh, had a bit of a bathroom injury. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, so five. But I mean, they had no business being in a series against Anaheim. Anaheim was a complete buzzsaw, and uh, Lou was just that good. Yeah. So, actually, sorry. Speaking of Luongo, you were you worked with the Florida Panthers. What's what's Luongo like? Like kind of away from the rink. What was it like to work with a guy who? You know, you probably, you know, you covered a lot with the Vancouver Canucks. I'm like, now I got to tell this guy, like, to do interviews and stuff like that. Yeah, it was weird. Um, but look, Lou's a great guy. Classic gentleman. A lot of fun to be around. Uh, very funny. Great sense of humor. Um, you know, really an honor to work with him every day. Absolutely. And sorry, just this came just came to my head. Would you retire Luongo's number with the Canucks? Yeah, I think it's a slam dunk. He's going to get it. See, I'm of the opinion that... The Canucks already have too many numbers retired for a team that don't have never won a Stanley Cup. I say we put a moratorium on any numbers retired until this team wins a Stanley Cup because with the first team to ever win a Stanley Cup, everyone's going to want every single number of that team retired. I see that argument, but ultimately, from my perspective anyway, Luongo has a track record. like He has a Hall of Fame track record in Vancouver, and the only other guy... Uh, or the only other guys who have that are the Sedin twins, Henrik and Daniel, and Pavel Bure. And so, from my perspective, anyway, like Belongo, like if you're a Hall of Fame, if you have, if your prime years are Hall of Fame quality, and you spend them with the Canucks organization, like for me, that's a slam dunk. And so, I, I would see them hang one, and I, and I hope they do the right thing and do so. See, my see. I see seven numbers is too many for me. If you let's let's take down like Stan Smeal's number or something like that. No, can't take down Steamer's number. Sure, you can. He was K. No. I was looking through Stan Smeal's number. This guy barely cracked. Maybe I'm just like a young kind of brash guy here. I don't really care. This guy got 88 points one year. You couldn't get over 90 points in the 80s when like goalies were wearing styrofoam coolers as pads. Doesn't matter. Stan Smeal's been there for forty years, man. Doesn't yeah, again, like you can't you don't take a number down. That's ridiculous. Sure, sure we can. Absurd. Absurd. Like he the Canucks have found new ways 
of precedent to disappoint fans all the time. I'm sure we can find a new way to find precedent to take down a number. Maybe just move him to the Ring of Honor. That's kind of like a lateral move. People can no. still wear the number. Ludicrous. No, no one should ever wear 12 again. One should also be retired. Is you he... just got to get over the Stanley Cup hangup. Okay, sorry. Going back to the long... Would he... Is he getting his number retired by the Panthers? 100%, right? Like It's already done. Oh, it's already done. Yes, sorry. Yeah. I don't know how I missed that, man. Okay, we're cut. <laughs> happened happened like a week before the suspension of play. Oh, that's that's why I probably forgot about it then. Oh, yeah, man. it was like it was like the Saturday, the last Saturday, or the last Saturday, the last Saturday before the league shut down. All right, so they didn't wait at all to cut uh, retire his number. No, no, no. Well, Luongo's the franchise. I mean, mm-hmm. Luongo's a big deal down there for for good reason, right? He's the guy who wanted to come back. Yeah. So was he? Like you, you, you know Luongo pretty well. It was he? It was always going to be like either when when he wanted to move from Vancouver, it was always going to be back to Florida, right? There was really no other option. No, I mean his list expanded as time went on. Um, like he would have gone to Toronto that deadline, um, you know, for the two second round picks, the deal they got pretty close, but the, the Maple Leafs probably didn't make in good faith. Like they probably didn't actually want to make the deal, uh, but the. You know, by that point, he would have gone elsewhere. But, um, you know, ultimately, South Florida was always his preference. That's where his home is. That's where his family is. That's where he'll be. All right. So one last question. You did yep. a great article about Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. Is Quinn Hughes the best Canucks defenseman of all time? Not yet, but he will be. That That's, that's my opinion as well. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, Edler's got the resume to be the greatest defenseman of all time. And, you know, uh, he's surpassed Oland just based on his longevity and his career numbers. Um, but, you know, those two are sort of one-two. And the fact is the Canucks have never really had, like, a high-end, number one, Norris-caliber defenseman no. um, in, the, in the franchise's history. And Quinn Hughes has the potential to be that. Uh, probably performed not at that level, but nearly at that level this season as a 20-year-old a role. Uh, pretty incredible stuff from a pretty incredible young player. A lot of fun to cover him this year. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, you, I'm, I'm excited for Quinn Hughes' prime. I think he's going to smash Edler's prime. Like, like you said, the Canucks have never had a defensive like this who can contend for, legitimately can contend for Norris. Right. Well, look, uh, Edler's career has, he had 50 points once, right? Or 49 points? Yeah, yeah. 2012, you had like a. That was his big offensive year. Right. And, and Quinn Hughes passed it this season. I mean, Quinn Hughes probably would have hit, hit and set the record, the all time record for Canucks uh, points by a defenseman this season, if the season had played out over 82 games. So, you know, I, I mean, I think the ceiling and potential for him to do it and to do it relatively quickly is, is evident, obvious. Um, you know, and, and there's. I suspect, anyway, from watching Hughes play, that he's kind of just scratching the surface of what he's going to ultimately be able to do in his practice. Absolutely. Well, Trance, it was it was great to have you on. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no problem. Uh, talk to you soon. Cheers, bud. All right, take care, man. Bye. Okay, so what I want to talk about for my binge recommendation this time is a movie that is not that old. It really isn't. It's only about 10 years old at this point. I was watching it the other night on Netflix. Haven't seen it since it came out. And that's The Social Network. Yes, The Social Network. The movie about how Facebook was made. Now, I was watching it the other night, and it still holds up. I would say it's probably the best movie of the 2010s. Is that what we're calling this decade? The 2010s? Yeah, I guess we're calling it the 2010s. Alongside Get Out. Those are the two best movies, I think, of this past decade. And if you look at a lot of lists of the best movies of 2010, it holds up. It's like right around there. Best movies of 2010. Yeah, a lot, a lot of them put The Social Network right up there. It was actually, this movie was really critically acclaimed at the time it came out. I didn't realize it until you know, doing a little bit of research for, uh, for this segment. But it was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Didn't win for any of the major categories, but yeah, this was a really highly acclaimed movie. Jesse Eisenberg is obviously Mark Zuckerberg. You have a young Andrew Garfield, 
as uh, Eduardo, forget his last name, I think his name's Saverin, kind of the co-founder of Facebook, it's about the lawsuit, you know, it has the lawsuit kind of coming back and forth, and it goes to flashbacks about how they made Facebook. At the time, you know, you think this is a over-dramatization of Mark Zuckerberg, what he's actually like, but if you look in hindsight, it actually, you know, this is probably a lot like what Mark Zuckerberg is like, knowing what we know now about Mark Zuckerberg. He's portrayed, you know, as this guy who's kind of aloof and is just concerned about Facebook and growing Facebook. He doesn't see the the ramifications. It could be a bit cold. Yeah, I think they portray, looking in hindsight, what we know now pretty accurately about Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, this is like, and what I want to talk about is I would love to see a sequel somehow to this movie. I would love to see, knowing what we know about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, I would love to see, I would love to see a sequel for this movie. I don't know how they get it done. Uh, If you didn't know, Social Network's actually based off a book. So, I don't know, you don't probably, there's enough knowledge about, you know, what's going on with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook since then. You don't need to base it off a book, but yeah, I would love to see a sequel to this movie. I don't know what we call it, Social Network 2, but yeah. I would say, out of all the movies that have come out recently, in the past decade, this is a top the list for me. You have also, of course, Justin Timberlake's in there, Sean Parker. And you can talk about him, like he got busted, and guess what? He turned out well, he was one of the major investors in Spotify. So he's doing pretty well for himself. Of course, he probably owns a bunch of shares in Facebook as well, he's doing pretty well for himself. Maybe they over-dramatized a bit about the Winklevoss twins. Yeah, Social Network, great movie. Jesse Eisberg's great. Andrew Garfield's great. Just an all-around fantastic movie. I would recommend it. Maybe it feels, you know, a bit dated, considering what we know about Facebook now. But hey, still a fantastic movie to watch during this quarantine. And hey, after you finish watching it, tweet at us. At Power of the Towel, let me know what your thoughts are on this movie because I think it's interesting to watch this movie back knowing what we know about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Watching it in that different light, I think you'll find it. You'll have an interesting different take on it than maybe when you first watched it, if you've ever watched it at all. Anyways, that's this week's episode of Power of the Purell, the quarantined version of Power of the Towel. I'm your host, Nick Bondi. Make sure to... Like and subscribe to the Nuxmas Content Network wherever you get podcasts. It'll help us out a lot. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Power of the Towel, myself personally at Nick Bondi. Once again, thanks to Thomas Drantz for hopping on the podcast. You just listened to Power of the Purell. Thank you for listening.